he carried that guilt with him for 60 years. So, you know, so he said to me, I will do anything I can to help you. And he hugged me like I was the son he had before I went into the Marines. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Hope you had a good Christmas. If you celebrate Christmas, if you don't, I hope you had a great weekend. It it was an awesome weekend for us. We had such a great time with family. And I I am actually so excited about today's episode too, because it's been a long time coming. I met Ron over a year ago at a Veterans Day bike ride from an adventure. So I was out on a bikepacking adventure a few weekends before the Veterans Day ride. Met this guy who was so interesting. And he he and I got to talking. Shout out Dwayne if you're listening. And he was like, hey man, we're going to be doing this bike ride for Veterans Day in a couple weekends. You should come out and bring uh, Athletic Brewing, the non-alcoholic beer you work for. It'd be a huge hit at this Veterans Ride. And I said, oh, that'd be fantastic. It's at this beautiful beach near our home. I'd love to go. So I brought all the beer I had, uh, and it was it's to support veterans, like I said. And they had a big steak dinner. The beer goes so great with that. Then everybody can drive home safe because it's non-alcoholic beer. Um, and the guy putting on the event, the the, the guy who was kind of who, who started the whole organization the ride was for, uh, was there, Ron, who who we're talking to today. And he had no shoes on his feet. And I thought, and it was raining, you know, there was stuff going on. He's carrying stuff. And I was like, hey, man, why aren't you wearing shoes? And he looks right at me and says, because I don't want to. You got a problem with that? (laughs) And I was like, dang, no, I'm good. I just was curious. And we got to talking. And I asked him, well, why aren't you wearing shoes? You know, like, is there a story? And he gave me a quick synopsis. And then he mentioned that he had through hiked the Appalachian Trail with no shoes on and walked across America with no shoes on. And I said, man, I don't know how or when we're, we're going to have you on my podcast at some point. That is an incredible, sounds like an incredible story. I cannot wait to hear more. And, uh, you, you're not going to be disappointed. We, we were able to, I was able to sit down with Ron for about an hour, hear some of his story. He recently had a book come out. The whole organization, the book, everything is called The Long Walk Home. Uh, That's longwalkhome.org, and that's also the name of the book. And I have read parts of the book. haven't read the whole thing yet, but it is way more detail. It is Ron's story of becoming, uh, uh, against his will, honestly, a Marine. Um, His guilt from the Vietnam War as as part of his squadron died, and he did not. Um, And he decided to just to take off his shoes as a way to deal with the grief, deal with the guilt, and to deal with it emotionally. But um, as you'll hear, he, he he kept it to himself why he took his shoes off. But he hasn't worn shoes since 1972, and he, he, he has recently started putting shoes back on. While the time he wasn't wearing shoes, he's done some incredible things and continues to through his organization. So I highly encourage you to check out what they're doing at the Long Walk Home. Uh, dot org, as well as checking out Ron's book. He's a hell of a storyteller, so I'm excited to bring this story to you today. But, you know, that's enough of me setting it up, but I just want to say, Ron, thank you so much for being on. I love, love, love having people on from from a personal connection or from someone I met out in the world. Um, so this one's a true pr- pleasure to bring to you today, and it's a great one to get us geared up for a brand new year. So um, enjoy. Have a wonderful week. Um, you'll be hearing from us on Thursday. Here we go. Ron, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is what kind of home did you grow up in and where did you grow up? Okay, well, I grew up in on Long Island in the Hamptons. Um, and people think, oh, well, you're rich. No, there's somebody had to take care of those rich people. That's that's what we did. And uh, my household was a dysfunctional World War II home. Um, my father, you know, we're Polish. We get that from the last name. 
And uh, <clears throat> my father uh, had a choice at the age of 17 to go to prison for armed robbery for four years or go into the military. So he chose the military. And he got to be one of the guys that went to Auschwitz for the tour at the end of the war. And they're scraping our relatives off the floor in the ovens. So that's, that's the guy that raised me. So I got beat physically or verbally every day. And, uh, you know, I thought he didn't love me, but I realized that he was preparing me for the world that he saw. So we didn't, I mean, he loved me the best he could. You know, he was always there, drunk or sober. He, well, he was drunk every day. So he was, he was always there, but it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't an Ozzy and Harriet household, you know? And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, so like we didn't do, you know, he would take us fishing and he would do stuff with us, but he worked, you know, he worked a lot to keep food on the table. And, and so we could keep drinking, you know, back then that was the deal, but yeah. So, uh, so I, I started fighting at an early age, you know, because I was angry a lot. So I got into fighting and my third cousin was Tony Zale, the middleweight champ of the world. So, um, I thought I was bad and tough. So I, I fought a lot and took mixed martial arts and all that stuff. And how I got into the camping was that, uh, I, when I went through a divorce and I was going to lose, I knew I was going to lose my mind because of the divorce, because I lost my kids. I, uh, decided that I had to, I had to go away and do something to be totally away from it. So I, you know, to find some peace. So I walked the Appalachian trail in the late eighties just to find some peace. And I did that barefoot and, and uh, I made all my own gear out of Tyvek. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were telling me that. And I want to ask you growing up in the Hamptons on Long Island, why, why did you know, was it instinctive to know that out in the woods and out and doing adventure was going to be a healing process? How did you know that was going to work or help? Um, I, you know, what happened was I just, heard somebody talk about it you know that oh the trail's a good place and then you know i also had read the book a mutant message uh, down under with this woman took a you know a walk about and walked across this australia and i figured you know it made sense to me to uh, you know the indians did it and you know i believed in vision quests and all that kind of stuff so i figured you know what i got nothing to lose because I didn't know what to expect. And I gave power of attorney to the guy that worked for me in my business. So that if I don't come back, sell it and make sure my father and my brother get the money I own. Because I had no idea if I was going to live. Get killed. Who, who, I had no clue what to expect. But I was going. Because I had the, And it was my vision quest. Because what happened was I went to go speak to God. Who I, you know, was angry at. And, uh. So I sat for, you know, I walked for like two weeks and then I sat for three days in the woods and didn't do anything and just was quiet waiting to hear God talk to me. So that's how I started doing it was it was my vision quest. And I, you know, think I'm so tough and everything. And and I didn't I wanted to do it. I wanted to be like an Indian and be self-reliant and not rely on man-made stuff. But I combined the two worlds by making my own gear out of paper because I wasn't going to go kill a deer and make a bag out of it and, you know, make my tent. I figured, let me combine both worlds. I'll be self-reliant, make all my own gear, which was my tent, my sleeping bag, my rain gear. You know, I, I made everything out of that. Wow. So that and and I brought a roll of tape with me so that I could do repairs because, you know, I don't like counting on anybody and I like to be self-sufficient because, you know, I think, oh, you know, I'm that only I'm doing it. But I realize that, you know, I never do anything alone. There's other people there. You know, the guys that made the Tyvek, the guys that made the tape, you know, I always think, oh, I did it. No, no. But, uh, you know, so I learned a lot. I'll tell you that because I, I, uh, I used to get 
advice from people. So I would have somebody to blame if it went wrong. But going out there on my vision quest, it was me. And I'm the only one that could give myself the answers I needed. And I did get the answer, you know. Yeah. And and I want to ask you, going back a little bit, you mentioned being barefoot. Now, that's going to be in the title, you know, doing this stuff barefoot. What, what, I know you've probably told the story a million times, but what led to you, you know, I know, I know you are a, a veteran. You were actually born on Veterans Day. Um, you, you, you were destined. You couldn't even get away from it if you wanted to. Uh, you were in right. the Marines and a response of, of how to deal with the loss of some folks in your squadron, your squadron, you, you decided to not wear shoes. Can you take us through like that story and why, why you yeah. did that? Okay. Well, I, to give you some more clarity on that, I went in the Marines to hurt my parents. I got the, I won the draft lottery back then. They had the lottery. Yeah. And uh, the only way they could get people, you know, they, they had, well, you know, it was all political nonsense, but so, uh, my number was 34 and I was going, but I don't believe in killing, but you know, at that age, everything is black and white. You know, if you say this and do that, you're a hypocrite. And, you know, being angry as I was at everybody and everything, my, you know, we're real Catholic. I mean, I can't get away from being Catholic if I try, you know? So what I did to hurt my parents, because I believed they were hypocrites. So when they said to me, why are you going in the Marines? You don't believe in killing. I said, well, it must be all right if the church doesn't stop it. And I want to see what it's like to kill somebody. And then my mother just sat there and cried. And then I realized, you know how you think you know what you want when you uh, go for something and after you get it, you realize you didn't want that. Well, I realized that that's not really what I wanted, you know, so uh, I felt terrible. And, um, you know, and at that age, you don't really you think you know what you're doing. You have no clue. So when I go in, I realize it's no game. We really do kill people. And I get into a fight with my commanding officer and have orders to go to Vietnam. So he invites me into his office after I get my orders and says, what do you think of that, Zaleski? And I says, I think the only way you're getting me over there is if you chain me to a helicopter because I'm not going. He says, is that right? I says, that's right. So I leave there and I don't tell my parents when I get home. And I, <clears throat> I get down on my knees and I say, God, help me, because I don't think I have the courage not to shoot another man. I'm afraid and I want to live. So I decided I'm not going to run to Canada. I'm going to you know, suffer my consequences. So I go out there and I'm prepared to go to prison for five years for disobeying the direct order. I get out there and I'm supposed to go with five other guys that I knew from the base. They all go when it comes my turn. I say, I'm not going. They said, don't worry, coward, your orders have been changed. And I'm like, thank you, God. Not realizing my commanding officer probably realized I'd get myself killed and probably everybody around me. So um, I don't think anything of it. I just think I'm lucky. And then uh, a month before I get out, I see one of the five and he's limping. And I said, what happened? He says, we all got shot and two died. So I, I felt all this guilt, shame, anger all at once just flood me. And, uh, I figured I didn't want them to have died and suffered in vain. They fought for my freedom. I can do what I want. I'm not wearing shoes. So when I got out, I didn't wear shoes. And people would say to me, hey, how come you're not wearing shoes? I'd say, I don't feel like it. You got a problem with that? I, I think you told me that when I asked you. Yeah. And, uh, you, man, you're not anybody I want to mess with either. Well, I don't have that much money in the bank to back up my checks anymore, you know, but, but, but I'll make you hurt anyway, you know? Well, can I ask you this? Why, why was that the response? Had you ever seen that before? Or was that just the first thing you thought of and said, that's, that's how I'm going to express this? It was, it, it wasn't really a memorial. It, it was, it was a meaningless penance, a hollow memorial. Because it was my act of defiance. It was another way I could express my anger and just be an angry guy. That's what it was. And, you know, when I realized that when, uh, well, and I was angry for 33 years. 33 years, people would ask me why, and I'd get that response. And people would leave me alone. And, you know, you didn't want me in your house. And 
you know, I wasn't a real nice guy. And then uh, what happened in 2005, this little kid asked me, you know, how come you don't wear shoes? And that's the first person I told in 33 years. And when I told him why, I realized that I'm the problem. I haven't helped a soul. This this so-called penance I have for my friends meant nothing because it didn't do anything to help them. And that was unacceptable to me. And I was going to change that to create awareness for post-traumatic stress because, you know, then, you know, I started to look and see the data that, you know, 18 vets a day are committing suicide. And I figured I could do something to help. And I figured on the trail, going on the Appalachian Trail, those people seemed to have their act together and they would help me spread the word out because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't a good speaker. You know, I didn't have any influence, but I figured if I did it on the trail that these guys would help me get the word out. And uh, so I made my gear and, you know, I spent a couple of days making my gear, getting excited. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, if uh, if this doesn't work, I have plan B and C. There, there was no plan B or C with me. I have a goal. My goal was to walk the whole trail barefoot. There was no plan B or C. There's I'll shift and I'll do something different. But I had I totally relied on myself and my equipment and my ability. And I went with that. And when people say, you know, oh, I got a plan B or a plan C, that's saying they're afraid. That's saying they have doubt. That's saying that that goal really isn't that important. I mean, this is my take. Because with me, when I make up my mind to do something, I cut the lines to the dock and I'm gone. And I may not, it may not, that my path may not look as straight as I originally intended, but my, that's my goal. And that's where I'm going till I, till I die or somebody stops me. So, I mean, you know, so, I mean, these people, I met guys on the trail, they had gear, they had plenty of food, you know, they had shoes, you know, what a bunch of and then and then they quit then they quit oh it's hot oh my feet hurt yeah so you know if, uh, you know if you look at anything already negative like you can't make it i i look at it as well i got to find a way around this because there's a way around it because there's a million ways to do something right you know right. My that, that's break. your plan yeah. b is another way to get the same goal done yeah yeah that that is this I have the same goal. My goal doesn't change. You decided to not wear shoes. And you mentioned that that was your your personal act of penance. But you never shared that with anybody. You never told anybody why you weren't wearing shoes until that little boy back in 2006 right. or 2005. Right. And at the time, what, what, what were you doing with your life? That was 33 years. I know you were, okay. you were a business owner. You were yeah, living I had your a, life trying to make it. But I created my own world. I got out of the Marines. I went and lived in the woods for a year because I had so much trouble with people. I went home. My father had started the business, but it was drinking his way through it. My mother was running the business, which was a scuba shop. And I could see he was just beating her into the dirt. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to come out of the woods, burning my bridges there because I had a shingle mill and I had a, you know, a commune up there. And I, I left it, got rid of my shingle mill and went home and, and got married because I figured that would be the real big anchor to keep me there and worked the family business and took it over. And then I made my own will because, you know, since I ran the business, I didn't have to wear shoes. Right. Because I'm the boss. No shoes, so no I, shirt. Doesn't matter. That's right. I don't care if you come in naked as long as you're carrying money. <laughs> right. As long as you can so, put it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As long as you wash it off before I get it, I'm happy. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, so I basically created my own world, which was insulated from all the other stuff. You know, I avoided watching news most of the time. You know, that's how I lived. So I was kind of in denial, shut off from the rest of the world. And, you know, I fought with the town. I fought with the board. I fought with everybody, you know, because nobody was going to tell me what to do. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's how I survived, because I, you know, took over the family business, built it up and so that I could live any way I wanted. 
you know, I had money and a wife and all that and family, but I, I mean, I destroyed my marriage because I was, you know, punishing myself all the time. I mean, my father, I met my father before I went and walked on the trail. And he says to me, because he and I, we had a bad relationship because when I get back from the Marines, he said, I'm proud. And I said, I'm not, I'm ashamed because they treated us like animals and spit on us. So my father, you know, he was from the World War II era. And so he didn't understand this whole Vietnam thing. So, you know, I, he just turned his back on me and walked away. So from that day on, it was a rough relationship. And so before I'm going into the woods, he says to me, what are you punishing yourself for? So when I told him why, that's the second time in my life I saw my father cry. Because he said, I was in for the last five months of the war. He said, I'm on the train coming home with a guy after the war's over. And the guy's sitting behind me and he says, I've been in the foxholes for five years. I don't know how to act when I get home. My father turns around. The train goes on. It hits a bump. One of those heavy footlockers drops out of the overhead rack, hits this guy in the head and kills him instantly. My father says, why didn't God take me instead of him? He carried that guilt with him for 60 years. So, you know, so he said to me, I will do anything I can to help you. And he hugged me like I was the son he had before I went into the Marines. So, you know, so. Uh, how, how did that. How did you transition that into the experience? I'm sure you felt that like this was, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing now, without a doubt. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Mason. If you don't know, Kurt is the former host of Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt, I heard you had a little story for us. Okay, true story. A couple of years ago, I decided it was finally time to get just the right ski for me. But ski technology changes so quickly, and I really didn't know what I needed, so I just went to Powder 7, and I told them my skier ability, how I wanted to ski to perform in the pow, and on the corduroy, and in the bumps, and they pointed at a ski in the wall and said, I think this is the one for you. Of course, they showed me several others and told me how they would differ, but in the end, they said, but based on what you said, this is probably the one. I have never had as much fun on a ski as the one that they recommended for me. So if you're going to buy new skis... Why not buy the right ones for you? And to do that, go to Powder 7. They really know what they're talking about. And I also wanted to add, they have pretty much perfected the art of buying skis online too. So even if you're not in the area, they have a very robust website, extremely helpful. And the cool thing too, they do sell a lot of used demo skis. So I know we on the show are always looking for deals. Um, that's a great way to save a little money if uh, budget's tight right now. So definitely check out Powder 7 by going to powder7.com. Again, that's powder7.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, no, I, I was still clueless because, you know, when I did the walk, I figured, well, I'm going to create awareness for post-traumatic stress and I'm going to be a hero and, and I'm getting people to sign letters and stuff. And, and I got a hearing in Congress. You know, I, I got to have a hearing while I'm out in the woods. Somebody found out about me, told the congressman, I get a phone call that they want me to go to Washington and speak. So I'm like, OK, you know, so I go. And, you know, you like me. I always think I know what I'm doing, but I, the older I get, the more I realize I'm clueless. So, you know, I think, well, they're going to hear me and they're going to do what I tell because like, you know, I've got some secret they don't know where they never No, They know all of this stuff. They're just not doing anything about it. And they just saying, oh, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. But then they didn't do anything. I wanted mandatory counseling for all soldiers and military personnel prior to discharge. You know, they have a TAP program, transit awareness program, but it's it's not enough. It's got to do more than it is. But, you know, so it was. And also, I realized that that walk that I did in the woods was my penance to forgive myself for sitting on my hands for 33 years, being angry, being the problem. Wow. Well, tell tell me when you 
started walking barefoot on the trail, by the way, did, did you come across anyone else kind of on a similar vision quest, a similar journey? And, and, and tell us about some of the experience of, uh, of being out there doing that. That's yeah. a, that's a big goal for anybody, much less yeah. trying to achieve the things you're aiming for and doing a barefoot. Well, a lot of people were out there walking for a cause. I, I saw that and and I appreciated that because they figured it's a way to get awareness because not everybody walks the Appalachian Trail, the whole thing, you know. Right. And, um, you know, and it's a tough it's a tough thing because you're up and down, you know, mountain pe- property that people won't buy to build houses on. So it's it's pretty harsh stuff, some of it, you know. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there and I would talk to people, you know, I mean. I'll never forget one lady came up to me and she started talking about, oh, you know, you've got to uh, protest the um, that they're using, um, you know, spent uranium for the weapons and stuff. And it's causing all this damage. And, you know, all oh, you know, she went on and on. I says, well, and she says, you know, help me. I says, well, what are you doing about it? Well, nothing. I'm talking to you. I says, well, that's how much help I'm going to give you because I see how much it means to you. And she got pissed off and walked away. And that's how I used to be. I used to see things that I saw with social problems and tell people what they should do to fix it and didn't do anything myself. So, of course, nobody's going to help me because obviously it doesn't mean anything to me. And how can they help me if, if they have to do all the work? So it was it was a real big eye opener for me. And like I said, it was my penance to forgive myself because I had punished myself for years for that whole era and, you know, and why I went in the Marines and, and what I had done and all the guys that get killed and all the guilt that they're dead and I'm alive. And maybe I should, could have done something or did I do the right thing by sticking up for what I believe in, you know, because when I was in boot camp, not all those guys want to go kill somebody, you know, and they're all afraid We're, you know, I mean, guys that aren't afraid, there's something wrong with them. You know, these guys that say, oh, I'm not afraid. Well, I'm afraid. You know, I'm, I want to live and I'll do whatever it takes. And I met guys that said that, you know, he says, I do whatever it takes to get home. And and I get it. You know, we're not trained our whole lives to kill. We're trained for 12 weeks to kill, go against everything we've taught and believe. And then we're put in a life and death situation. And, and then, you know, some of us kill and then we have to live with that forever. And people think, well, just get over it. No, you don't get over that, you right. know. And the the only way I can explain it to civilians is, okay, you're driving a car, your whole family's in it, and you get in this horrific accident. It might be your fault. It may not. We'll never know. Everybody dies but you. Well, get over it, you know. You know people die in a car accident. So what, your, your baby was, you know, crushed in front of you. Get over it. No, you don't get over that. You know, so, I mean, we have more in common than we have differences. In this country, we try to make everybody different than everybody else. No, no, we're all the same. You know, we have a little different point of view. But why do we have to pick teams and make enemies of one another? I mean, it's it's silly. And, you know, I was I was real reluctant the first time I went on the trail barefoot, I got to tell you. Cause, yeah, I was going to ask you, were you afraid of that experience? Like, Well, yeah, big, the first journey. Yeah, the, well, the first time when I went for my vision quest, I was concerned, you know, because doing nobody, you know, I mean, one guy from Africa did it like, you know, 40 years before or more. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, and, you know, get hurt and this and that. And then plus I didn't know. I figured, well, I'm going to get eaten by a bear or killed or God knows what, you know. But uh, the second time I went, I was a little concerned about doing the whole thing barefoot because when I did that little short thing, you know, my feet bothered me, I got to tell you. But, I, you know, I learned to pace myself and I figured if I, you know, put on shoes now, what am I going to tell people why I went barefoot? You know, that knew me that I went barefoot. And I says, oh, now, now you're going to wear shoes? Well, why didn't you wear it before? So... I kind of painted myself into a corner in a way, and I'm glad I did because what I, because of doing it barefoot, I got attention and that attention I used to create awareness. 
But um, I got to tell you, there's a lot better gear to use than Tyvek and, and felt because I use <laughs> I use one piece of felt as my blanket in the Tyvek bag. And the the concept was that the Tyvek would keep me dry, which it, it weeps. So you don't really stay dry. And God bless felt. I got to tell you that because <clears throat> I started in the north end and went south. And, you know, I mean, I went through snow and all of that barefoot. And what I would do was start later in the day. So the sun at least got on the ground and there was at least some black mud, which absorbs the sun. So I would get some warmth on my feet. But I had one change of clothes, a piece of felt and Tyvek. And uh, I put my water bottles on my sticks to distribute the weight better. One of the things that happened, because I made my gear and I made it so that it was on my shoulders, that after like uh, eight months, I had to get off the trail. I think it was seven months I got off the trail because my legs went numb. Because of being barefoot, there was no cushion. And the weight on my shoulders compressed my spine, so my legs went numb. So I got off the trail for five months and made this traction rack for myself and then went back on the trail and finished it five months later. So, but what I had done was remake my gear. So it all went on my hips and I had my water bottles on my stick so that at least my arms didn't turn into twigs. Jeez. And I didn't realize what else you had to consider with your feet. That was one of my questions was what else, what unique challenges were you facing that other hikers weren't who who had shoes on? Yeah, well, uh, I had to go slower because I had to be mindful of where my feet were because, you know, once I tore like the, a whole slab of my skin off the bottom of my foot and taped it back on because I just sheared it off when I hit a rock with my foot. And, and were your feet getting tougher over time or were they oh, yeah, weakening yeah. or like getting softer and softer? No, they were getting, they were getting like an animal's foot. I, I, one day I had some gum on my heel and I scraped it off and there was something shiny under it and I pulled it out and I had a staple in my foot and didn't know it. <laughs> oh my God. I bet you did. I bet you had some yeah. calluses that were about, oh, yeah. about an inch thick. Yeah. And I didn't realize how bad my feet looked. And I had this, uh, like a photographer and a news reporter take a picture of my feet and write an article in the paper. And when I talked to my sister, my sister said, when mom saw that picture of your feet and read the article, she cried. And the caption under the thing was, his toes look like swollen sausages. Cause my, <laughs> and, and it, it didn't even look almost like a human foot. And I didn't realize it because I, you know, I wore them every day and went every day and it was you right. know, slow Short time. Yeah. And then what happened was I started to use bag mom after a couple months because what was happening, you know, you walk through the mud and the marshes and stuff and it leaches the oil out of your feet. So then they start cracking and splitting. So I would walk the first half an hour in the morning. My feet were so stiff and sore that they started to get pliable. Either that or my feet just stopped complaining because they knew I wasn't going to stop anyway. You, you're going through the trail and you're you're getting towards the end. Tell us about you know finishing the trail. I know you said you took a break, but it what what was going through your mind? What did, how did you feel at that point? I, I was kind of it was kind of surreal, and I was kind of numb. Um, I got I got a, just a, a couple of stories I'd like to tell. Just so oh absolutely <laughs> yeah. So this one time uh, I'm up north. And I'm coming across this river, well, a a stream that had swollen basically to the size of a river. And it's like drizzling out. And there's a guy on the other side. And I said, is there a way around this? He says, no, you got to just go through it. And the guy's trail name was Lucky. So uh, I, you know, I go in to get across and I slip and fall and I lose half of my gear and I'm soaked. And it's drizzling and it's, you know, in the 60s and I'm up, you know, up north and and I think I'm still in Maine. And 
I get to this shelter and, you know, walking, it helps keep you warm and it helps dry out your gear because of your body heat stuff. But it drizzled, so I was still wet. And all my gear was wet. And the temperature was dropping. And I had nothing dry. I had no matches. I, you know, it basically was pretty much lost everything. So I'm there at this shelter. And thank God there was two guys there. And they made some hot tea. And they gave me this cup of hot tea because I was starting to shiver. You know how, and your joints start to oh, lock yeah, up. Oh, yeah, you're probably approaching uh, hypothermia. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I was headed. And these guys gave me this cup of tea. And I would just sip it a little bit, and they could feel it just go down my body. I don't know how much of that was real and how much was imagined. but And then I draped my whole body over that cup of tea. So I got the heat from the tea in my face and the warmth of it down. I nursed that thing as long as I could. And I think oh that, that cup of tea saved my life that night. And then I got into my wet gear, but it was warm because I sat on it to keep it warm. And, you know, I made it to the next day. Those guys have no idea how much that cup of tea meant to me. The majority of people are so ungrateful for what they have. You know, I mean, I was so grateful for that cup of tea. You have no idea. That's unbelievable. And I imagine that's changed the way you look at things even moving forward. Oh, um, yeah. Any other stories and, from that experience that, that really stick out to you, whether that was directly related to, to the cause or if it was something like that with the tea? Well, I mean, I, I had a thought that just disappeared. Um, but with that, the one other story that uh, I went on these you know people would always tell me oh wait till you get to pennsylvania because guys go through like two pairs of hiking boots in pennsylvania because of the rocks and stuff and since i started from the north and i'm going south everybody says oh wait till you get to, and i'm like oh my god i can't imagine what it's going to be like and when i'm up north and i go over avery mountain and that's like somebody took a concrete, etched it with acid, then broke it with a sledgehammer. So there's razor sharp edges and it's like 80 grit. I did what I call Polish Tai Chi. It took me, I walked a half a mile an hour because I, if I didn't place my foot right, I dragged one toe across the top and it tore the skin off the top. So I had to place my foot and it took me, it took me all day to get across that. I, I think I went, four to six miles that day because I would walk from sunup to sundown and my body couldn't catch up with the damage I would do to my body so I would take zero days but it was hard for me to just walk for eight hours and then sit and do nothing so I just kept walking and then would keep taking zero days you know so that my body could catch up with the damage but I mean I was so arrogant in my you know that i'm so tough and i can do anything i am so lucky that i didn't get killed on that trail because you know thinking that i was capable to do more you know i was just lucky because if those guys weren't there i could have probably died of hypothermia or got lost in the woods because i'd walk to keep warm you know yeah. didn't have the proper food i got jardia when i was on the trail near the end I lost 30 pounds in like two days because I didn't filter my water and I bragged about it because that was another thing I did then because, you know, I was so amazing and so awesome, you know. <clears throat> so I bragged that, oh, yeah, I can drink any water. I drink out of streams. I, I drank out of a puddle and I'm fine. The guy says, OK, so they get water for me. And bring me back a plastic bottle. I don't look at it and take a swig. Well, there was mosquito larvae in it and mouse turds. And I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't good. So I'm, I walk for two days and lose 30 pounds, and I get to this town, and the first thing I do is go to a health food store and get some black walnut tincture, which kills the parasites to get rid of the jardia. So, I mean, you can never prepare enough. You know, you, you, there's a point where you just got to pull the trigger and go with what happens. You know, if, if if I tried to think about everything I needed for the trail, 
that's what I call analysis paralysis, where you overthink it and you don't do anything because you can never be prepared for every contingency. Well, I was prepared to be able to shift, but it would have been nice to not be so arrogant in my skills because, you know, you make one simple little mistake. You don't look where you put your foot and you step into a hole and break your ankle. You know, so you got to be really mindful and and don't be so arrogant. I mean, I was definitely arrogant. I got to tell you that. And I, it's only because of God, you know, had pity on me that I made it. Did you have a trail name? Well, I called myself Tybeck, but that's not what they called me. You know, I went up to these guys, we're all standing in a circle. And, you know, we, we talk about food, gear, and our feet. Well, that's what most of them talk about. And I've never seen a Playboy magazine in anybody's gear. But I've seen, you know, cooking books in their gear. You know, they'll pull it out like it's a dirty magazine and look at a, a pork roast or something. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I come up to this group and they're all talking about their gear and, oh, you know, I get this and that. And when I get up to the circle, they all look at me. They look at one another. They shut up. They turn around and walk away because I guess they figured, what are we going to say to this guy? He doesn't wear shoes. His gear looks like garbage. You know, they they couldn't complain anymore. So what are they, how are they going to complain in front of a guy like me? So they, they stopped. So I go up to one of them and I says, Hey, what's your trail name? Cause I loved trail names cause they're so cool. And I like the story behind them. So I go to this one guy, I says, what's your trail name? He says, cornbread. And I says, well, why do they call you cornbread? He says, well, because I like to eat cornbread. I says, well, my name is Ty. And he says, I, I know what you call yourself. That's not what we call you. I says, what do you call me? He says, we call you the holy shit man. How does he do it? <laughs> so I just shortened it to holy shit man. That's a, that's a, that's even better. I like Tyvek, but, uh, yeah, that's, no, that, uh, that's, a, like, that's a good name. That's a, that, yeah. and that's a sign of respect. I think I, I was expecting oh, uh, yeah. something a lot worse than that. If you want me to be no. honest. And and it's funny because every time I'd come up on a hiker, you know, because they're usually looking down at their feet and they look up at me and they'd all say, holy shit, man. <laughs> so it was like a no brainer. They, I mean, it's just it's natural. Eh? <laughs> yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. But yeah, I tell you what, that's a that's a really cool uh, tradition of the trails to have a trail name like that. And uh, I, I did want to ask, too, you finished the trail. Totally, you know, unique dynamic. You're out there uh, on the trail promoting it, hoping that the word spreads from there. And then just a few years later, you decided to do something else. You decided to walk across America on the highways and in the, in the back roads to do the same yeah. thing, literally coast to coast from, from the East Coast to the West Coast. What made you want to do that? And how, and how was that different? Well, the reason I did that was because I didn't see anything really change after I walked across the country. And I realized that to create awareness is one thing, but to have a plan and get something instituted is another. And then after you get instituted, you got to have it carried out. So I realized, you know, I wasn't happy that nothing was being done that I could see. So then I, I made this sign, you know, a sandwich sign that I carried across the country that said 18 vets a day commit suicide in the long walk home.org. And then uh, I had a petition. I had everybody sign and I was going to take to Washington and tell them what to do because they obviously they didn't hear me the first time. So, uh, you know, so I do that. And like that, you know, I think I know what I'm doing and what's going to happen. Well, the first day or two, this woman stops me and she says, my son came home. I don't know if he's going to kill himself. I'm scared to death. You know, and then she holds me like I'm her son and cries. And I was, you know, at that time, I was still kind of a little numb. And then, but it, every day, a mother would come up to me. And this was the litany I heard every day from a mother or, or, or a parent. And they'd say, he told me I didn't believe him. I should have known it's my fault. Then they would hold me like that child that committed suicide and cry. I cried every day 
for 10 and a half months. It was brutal. And nobody knows about it because they take 100% of the responsibility. They don't blame the country. They don't blame America. They don't blame anybody but themselves for their child's loss. And uh, that just, that broke my heart. The suffering I saw was just brutal. And uh, yeah, it was, it was way different because also this time I had a camper that would follow, well, that would drop me off in the morning and pick me up at night. And I'd, you know, pick up wherever I left off. So after a couple of months, my feet started to bleed every day because I wore the calluses off and I'm walking on pavement. So that was that was one of the differences. But I ate a lot better on this and I didn't get jardia. So that was awesome. It's a longer experience. What do you feel like you learned at the end of that? Or what do you feel like you learned differently about either your cause or yourself or, or the world when you completed that one? Well, I, I learned a lot of things. I mean, I wrote a book about it. Um, well, I learned it humbled me for one thing, because even then, up till the end to the last month, I was still arrogant to think, I'm awesome. I did this. I'm going to go tell them what to do. You know, I'm, you know, I'm this great guy because I did all of this stuff, you know, and then I realized that I didn't never did anything alone. There was always somebody that supported me and I believe in God. So if it wasn't for God watching over me, you know, I could have got hit by a truck. I could, a lot of things could happen. I, I went through some really bad neighborhoods Nobody ever bothered me. Nothing ever hurt me. I mean, I went one time where they're having storms in an area and there was no storm around me. I mean, it was pretty neat because, you know, I had the I had the map that I charted my whole course. And there was this one time there was a whole storm in this area. But wherever I happened to be, there was no storm in that area. So I, I either I'm just really lucky or, you know, somebody's definitely watching out for me because there's so many things that could have went wrong that didn't. What Was there a day or an experience out there that you look back on and, and think of positively or favorably similar to that day with the storms? Maybe a landscape or an interaction you had that, that really, really sticks out to you? Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that because right now the, I went into New Mexico and I tried to do it in such a way that I wouldn't go through the desert in the middle of the summer and hit a heat wave because I can deal with cold, but the heat is not something I can do too well with. There was a big, like when you go into New Mexico and on this one road, there's a big sign that land of enchantment and it's snowing. And I'd never thought it snowed in the desert because I'm from up north and I always equate, you know, the desert with cactus and heat and never with snow. So it's snowing. And uh, a coyote comes and walks with me for a while. And the coyote was like all lumpy. And I found out that's because they use poison to kill them. And this one, or that's one of the side effects of the poison is that it makes them, makes them grow all these tumors on them. But it was, uh, it was like I was greeted into New Mexico by this coyote. It was, uh, it's kind of hard to explain you know, like little, little things. Like uh, when I, when I walked in this one area, I think I was, um, I think I was still in New Mexico and uh, the wind is blowing from my, right from my back. These two tumbleweeds come sideways against the wind in front of me and pause for a moment then went on. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's weird. You know, you don't, it's like they defied the laws of physics and everything. They they didn't know about physics, you know. Uh, there's just little things like that that happen. One of the, you know, this may sound weird and strange, but I guess you figure a guy that walked across the country barefoot and stuff, he's going to be a little strange yeah, and weird. You're, you're kind of like those, uh, those tumbleweeds. You kind of go against the grain a little bit your own way. Yeah. Okay. So, so. I'm a month from the end and, you know, I'm still arrogant and I'm on this road 
that's straight as an arrow across out there in California. I'm just in the California now in the desert. And the roads are straight along the railroad tracks. Like you can see the edge of the earth. You know, you're in the center of a dirt circle. And, you know, there's nothing higher than you. So you can see to the edge all the way around you. And I'm walking and I just walk past this little town. I'm like 19 miles from this little town because I know because I got dropped off, you know, because that's where I ended that day. And I got dropped off 19 miles from that spot. So I'm walking and I've got this little internal dialogue going, you know, like when you're out on your own, like I am a lot, you, you end up talking to your best companion yourself, you know. And, you know, I'm having this thing, how awesome I am, how great I am. I'm the only guy to walk across the country barefoot that I know of. Maybe the Indians did it. And, you know, I'm just awesome. And I'm going to Washington. And I'm going to tell them what to do. And, you know, I'm on TV and the papers and, you know, all, all of this, you know, just having a great old conversation. And there's nobody there arguing with me because it's just me. And then this car pulls up alongside of me. And a woman rolls down the window and it's not a brand new shiny car. You know, it's well kept and she's, you know, got doesn't have brand new clothes on, but they're kept missing a tooth. And she says, you know, I came out here to see somebody who cared. You know, my brother was in the military. My father was in. And you know what? I'm going to get you the best lunch you ever had. And I said, wow, thanks. And she turns around and goes back. So now she went 19 miles out of her way to see me because there's nothing between me and that town. And she's going back there, going to get me a sandwich, come back. And so she's going to do almost 100 miles. She's going to do over 80 miles to bring me a sandwich. You know, so that just fueled how awesome I am. Well, look at how awesome I am. This lady's doing this for me. You know, that's just proof. And, you know, I'm still, you know, in my own little world, how fantastic I am. Well, half an hour later. Oh, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I hope she doesn't think I'm a vegan because I could go for a roast beef hero. Right. So, uh, you know, like a half an hour to an hour later, she pulls up alongside of me again. She rolls down the window. She hands me out one of these little white uh, drugstore bags. Not real big. And she says, God bless you and your petition. So I, she rolls up the window. And she's making the U-turn right around in front of me. And I open the bag. And she's just at my shoulder now and starting to go behind me. I open the bag. I see a bottle of air, a bottle of water, a Mars bar, and a package of those orange crackers. And I look up and I say, God, this is the best lunch I ever had. <laughs> I turn around. There's nobody in the desert but me and this little white bag. Then I say, God, forgive me, because I expected my angel to have wings. And then I realized I would have never made it if he hadn't been with me every day. I had left him, but he never left me. And that, you know, that that and between holding a mother every day, that really humbled me. Because people that knew me, they said, yeah, when you walked the trail, you were a little arrogant. But they said, after you came back from across the country. You aren't arrogant anymore. Well, what else was in there was a little little slice of humble pie, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, t I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I've been on adventures one time, and I thought, man, if my friends from high school or something could see me now. And then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, well, I'm kind of homeless. I'm filthy. haven't bathed in a week. I have nowhere to go, particularly. And I, I actually don't think they'd be that envious of me. <laughs> I think they think, oh, man, poor Mason. He he went off the deep end. Right. Well, you know, a guy told me on the trail, he says, the only difference between through hikers and homeless people is Gore-Tex. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. that's about right. It's the truth. If A few hundred dollars worth of material right there. Um, that's that's the difference. I remember yeah. vividly on trips having to explain, like, no, I'm not homeless. I've, <laughs> I mean, even recently, my friends and I were, or my friends were biking across Florida just doing a bikepacking trip, and they held the door open for a woman at a grocery store, and she gave them $10 and said, there's still chivalry in the world. Here, go get yourself <laughs> something. They're like, we're not homeless. We're, we're just oh, riding yeah. bikes. <laughs> but you know what's neat is the experience you get out, because money can pay for what you get on that trip. 
you know, we are so into all these gadgets and all the stuff. When you go without it, what stuff do you really need? You know, and to find peace, what, what people would pay for that? You know, they work all these zillion hours and they would go, they go to retreats and pay thousands of dollars to find that where if they just took some time off and did like America's vision quest, did the Pacific Rim, did the Appalachian trail and just spent time with them without a phone. Oh, it would do wonders. Well, I wanted to ask you too, you didn't just do those experiences uh, in a vacuum or in isolation. You started a nonprofit, The Long Walk Home, and you've recently written a book. Can you talk about some of the work that y'all do, uh, which is how I know you, and I'm going to mention that in the intro too, how we met and um, how we're even having this conversation. But can you talk about what you do there and talk about the book as well? Yeah. Well, what happened was when I went to Washington the last time, you know, to tell them what to do, I realized that I don't tell them what to do. I do it, then go ask them for help and give them the credit. So I went to the Keys and built a homeless shelter. And then what was really interesting, because, you know, I'm not much on paperwork. So the only thing I would do is I'd have a one half of a page questionnaire, you know, what's your name, your address, your number, and, you know, our are you related? Are you a veteran or related to a veteran? Eighty percent of the people that were at my shelter were children of veterans because they were destroyed before they even got out of the gate. So that was a really interesting thing to learn because we think, oh, you know, uh, I used to hear this term. We're, you know, the military is acceptable collateral damage because we're only like three percent of the population you know, three to 7%. I'm not sure whose book you're looking at, but so, uh, but they don't realize we impact the entire country. Our families are in the impact zone. They, you know, look, my father had an impact on all of his kids. We've all drank, did drugs, and most of it been in trouble with the law and in jail. You know, if he had been a different person, none of that stuff would ever happened. So, yeah, so that was a big thing. So, you know, I started this homeless shelter, learned that, and then uh, I closed it down because I was going through a lot of stress when my mother died. And we would help veterans with any issue they had, money, home, whatever it was, we would get help immediately. That was one thing about us. We could get you help now, t- today, not, you know, in a week when you're dead and it's too late already. Well, I closed the shelter down. Then I moved up to Venice. Because I was living in the Keys, I move up to Venice and I start, you know, doing the same kind of thing. And I had planned to open up gyms that are free for veterans and stuff like that, because that was my original goal, because exercise and, and some kind of therapy or meditation goes along with that to really, you know, really heal post-traumatic stress and TBI. But um, what happened when Corona hit? I had to shift gears because I couldn't get out there in the public. So I, one of my vices is eating ice cream. You know, if you, they don't have ice cream places on the uh, Appalachian Trail. So it, <laughs> right. you know, I was jonesing out there. But right. so, you know, so I'm in this ice cream parlor and I'm 71. Okay. So I'm, and I'm a dinosaur when it comes to computers. So I meet this, uh, 26 year old kid and he's doing the ice cream and he says he's into internet marketing and this and that he says well maybe you can help me because you know i'm unable to reach people maybe you can help me and we can do something together well this kid worked for me for a couple of days and i said what is it going to take to hire you because i just saw the potential of what we could do how many people were we reaching so what we did we developed a 10 challenges to service, which is a program to help you get over your anger and create a new mission. And we need mentors, but the deal is to be a mentor, you have to take the challenges so that you can administer them. And it is, it's really powerful because we had a guy that had a gun in his mouth. He took the challenges, turned his life around. And then I said, well, you can become a mentor once you finish these. Well, he says, well, I hope you can forgive me and I hope you're not angry with me. But, you know, I already helped another guy. The guy he helped had a gun in his mouth and turned his life around. 
and it's and I realize that I don't help anybody. I inspire somebody to do something. You do the work because, you know, we have people that want us to help them. They want us to do all the work for them. They don't want to do anything. If you're willing to work with me, I'll work with you. So when people come to us and they want something because I'm such a softy, I'll say, okay, look, you take the first four challenges. If you can't do them, I'm not helping you because you're not involved in this process. You're not helping you. I'm not going to help you alone. And like the first challenge is, you know, what are you grateful for when you wake up? What are you grateful you accomplished at the end of the day? There's simple challenges like that. But if you've never done any self-work, they're huge. And they start to change your life because you start to look at things different. So that's, uh, you know, that has been monstrous because now we do it, you know, we have an online um, 10 challenges to service program. That's uh, part of our, one of the things we do. The other thing we're going to be doing at Zoom uh, starting in January, and we're doing them live at the YMCA's here locally. And when that goes off, we're going to probably be doing them at, at all the YMCA's we pro- possibly can. And we're working to get that instituted in the prison. I was just in the prison last week and uh, they're talking about putting our program in the prison. And, you know, that's because, you know, you can give somebody money, but you didn't help them. You appeased your guilt. Oh, yeah, I helped this homeless guy. Did you help him? No, you enabled him. But if you helped him change his life or you were inspirational and treated him like a human and got him to change his life, then you help that guy. And that's what it's about. Powerful stuff, Ron. I, I would love to direct anyone that's interested at all to towards your website, thelongwalkhome.org, uh, as well as checking out your book, The Long Walk Home. It, it, it's going to go into more details than, than you're able to even share right now, just because you're able to take your time really go through more stories. Um, well, it took me 14 years to write that book. So yeah, absolutely. And and now what other things can folks expect from that book? Just more details about what you're talking about here. Well, that and my transformation, because look, I was one of those angry Vietnam guys that you didn't want in your house. And I was a raging lunatic because I punished myself and I pushed, punished everybody that was in around me to hurt myself. So You could see my transformation and you could shift. One of the neat things, one of the people, I don't know if she wrote a review, but she called me and she said, thank you for that book because I was angry at my father most of my life because he was a veteran, but he had never been in combat. And the way he treated me and abandoned us and did all of this stuff, I was angry at him and hated him. After reading your book, thank you. I understand him now. And if that book helps, you know, one person shift and, you know, that's that's what it's about. The other thing is I want my kids to know who their father is because you live with somebody, but you don't know them. You know, your wife lives with you. Does she really know you? Does she know you when you were a kid? Does she know what you're thinking, what you feel, your your transformation? Most, Most people I didn't even know really me until I wrote that book because I really dug deep into who I was and why I did things. And I didn't even know some of the time why I did things. But after writing that book, I realized why I did those things. And now I can change because, you know, people say, oh, let go of stuff. How can you let go of something if you don't know where the handle is? When you when I wrote this book, I found out where the handles were and then I could release them. Well, man, was there anything else you'd like to share with the Adventure Sports Podcast community? It's a lot of people who want to, you know, do stuff like this and 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 have ideas that they want to pursue. That's very out of the box. I don't. I, it usually does involve shoes, though. What is with these guys in shoes? <laughs> I mean, I could see hat and gloves, you know, but shoes. Well, you know what? I mean, if anybody wanted to do that, I mean, I'm open to talk to anybody about. It. I had one guy call me that was going to do a hike, and he called me and asked for some advice because you know it's a little different you have to prepare different you know you if you're going to do something like that you 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 know you have to research and you got to know your own body no matter what it is you're doing if you're going to go you know ice climbing or whatever 
you got to get the right gear. You got to have backup. You got to know your limit. You got to know what you're comfortable with. And, you know, to me, you, you push envelopes. You, you know where you're safe and you get to that edge and you go over it if you can, long as you know you can get back. So you, so you expand your limits. But the, most of the limits is your own mind where you think you can't do something. I say you can do anything you want. There's nothing that is impossible. If you think you can do it, you can do it. But, you, you know, you got to you gotta believe and you, you have to be realistic and you know your limitations and you work with them and you prepare. I mean, I owned a gym, so I was in really good shape. So it wasn't like, it wasn't a physical struggle so much for me other than my feet. You know, one day, you know, people would ask me, do your feet hurt? And I would, I would always say no. And one day somebody asked me, do your feet hurt? And they said, yeah. And you know what they said to me? Well, well then put on shoes, stupid. So I never told anybody again. I never complained again about my feet because it's my choice. I made that choice. Okay. Well, Hey, I appreciate all the time you gave me. And, you know, I hope this helps somebody and I'm always available to help anybody with anything. Appreciate it, Ron. Thanks for making this happen a year in the making. And, uh, I'll see you soon. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Mate. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.